0: Hello, this is Fight Back, a podcast by the Healthcare Consumer Rights Foundation. I'm Steve Poisner, healthcare consumer advocate, founder and executive director. Our nonprofit's mission is to help you navigate the healthcare system and understand your legal rights, options and opportunities when you encounter problems and obstacles. We want to empower you with the information you need to fight back and get the best possible care. Do you ever feel overwhelmed trying to keep up with the latest information on COVID-19, its variants, the status of vaccines and treatment, how to stay healthy during this pandemic, or thinking about when this pandemic will ever be over? In our new COVID pandemic update series, we are privileged to have Dr. Brad Pollack join us on a regular basis to provide all of us with the most up-to-date information about all things COVID-19. Dr. Pollack is the Chairman of the Department of Public Health Sciences and Associate Dean for Public Health Sciences at the University of California at Davis School of Medicine. Let's get started. Dr. Brad Pollack, welcome to COVID update number three.
1: Thanks, Steve. Happy to be back with you.
0: So, gosh, as we know, this pandemic never seems to end. Uh, is Do you see a light at the end of the
1: tunnel here, Brack? Uh, well, I think we, we will have a light at the end of the tunnel. I, do I see it? Uh, it's getting closer. Um, and uh, I, I'm more optimistic than I was a few months ago. But uh, as we've dealt with for the last two years, um, the, the virus seems to be uh, outsmarting us or trying to outsmart us all the time. And um, so we are okay now in the U.S., not necessarily every place, but uh, large parts of the U.S., the the number of new cases uh, continues to fall, um, and that's a good thing for us. Uh, The same is not true all over the globe, and uh, we've seen recent upticks now of cases in in Europe uh, and actually in China of all places where they had a zero COVID policy. Um, uh, That means that they had very little COVID during the pandemic, but they also have now people running around that are completely susceptible or largely susceptible. And so they're seeing uh, cases uh, creep up now. They've done some pretty severe lockdowns in China. So um, whatever goes on with the virus, you always have to sort of localize it and and talk about what's going on in our backyard. Uh, And we have a big backyard too here in the U.S. It's not the same everywhere. But uh, unfortunately, we're seeing... um, a, uh, a another set of mutations that uh, took the Omicron variant and uh, caused what we call a subvariant. So there have been some small mutational changes that resulted in what they're calling a subvariant. It's the BA.2 subvariant. And uh, it looks like it's very, very similar to the original type of Omicron virus, which is called BA.1, um, but it seems to be a little bit more uh, infectious, maybe maybe 20 to 50% more transmissible than the original Omicron variant. So that's not good, but it doesn't seem to be uh, any more virulent. So it doesn't seem to be causing any more severe disease. Uh, That's also good. And also it uh, it seems to have the same um, uh, propensity for protection from the vaccines. Um, So it's not uh, much more difficult in that sense. So if you've had vaccination, you're still getting... Good protection. If you've been infected with the original Omicron uh, variant subvariant, uh, it's near impossible to get a second infection with Omicron, even with this new BA two subvariant. So I, I see. Are, yeah.
0: Now I was just going to ask on the on the BA two subvariant, uh, do the home rapid tests uh, are they, are they effective to, for picking that up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. All of our testing technology, uh, including the rapid antigen tests that we use at home work perfectly well with the uh, the new sub variant.
0: Got it, man. and you mentioned China. Um, just wondering about the, is there data on the effectiveness of the, the Chinese uh, vaccine? No, there's, you know, yeah. uh, at some point or another there's gonna be a, a lot of travel back and forth between the U.S. and China, just because of the, you know, the interdependencies of the two economies, even still today, despite the geopolitical challenges there. Uh, but, but yeah, have you seen data on the, the effectiveness of their vaccine?
1: You know, I have not. And uh, it's not been – if the data exists, uh, they haven't been uh, advertised in the same channels that most of us are getting our information uh, at. Um, so um, – There's not really good information about whether they were as effective. Um, That was a Sinovac, uh, uh, Canadian and and Chinese developed uh, vaccine. Uh, And they have not clearly become the predominant types of vaccines, which are thought to be more effective, which are the messenger RNA type vaccines. Um, but uh, that may be part of the issue that the vaccines they were using, they were perhaps not as good, but the Chinese also exerted extremely tight controls. They did all the non Pharmaceutical interventions, including uh, having their testing, but they also locked down, and of course, Shanghai was locked down now over a week ago. You know, one of the largest cities on the on the globe, uh, total lockdown. So the Chinese government has done a very good job from the public health perspective. Of trying to contain new new infections, but the vaccine protection—it's really I don't really know what it is over there. Um, Same thing is true with the Sputnik Five vaccine that the Russians developed. Uh, uh, Although there have been reports pretty common reports that that has proven to not be nearly as effective as the messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna. So um, in fact, countries that were getting free doses of Sputnik 5 have all converted over to uh, to using the, uh, the messenger RNA vaccines.
0: Right. And then you know, one last question about China. Do, do you think it's important from a lessons learned point of view, to to really get to the bottom of how COVID-19 started, you know, there's obviously a controversy over the different potential theories there. Do you think it's really essential we get to the bottom of it so that, you know, we can take precautions for the future?
1: Well, I think uh, clearly there was an interest in getting to the bottom of it. And that's not recent, that's going back a ways now. And uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization did, uh, Take efforts to go into China to try to figure out what happened there. Of course, there were um, theories that the Chinese invented the virus in their laboratories. Uh, I, I think the consensus has been that that is not the case at all, that this was a, a virus that came again, human, uh, animal to human transmission. Um, the, the maybe there's questions about how the virus was handled, uh, but it's not something that that is thought to have been overtly designed for any reason at all. Um and so uh is it important to know that um yes it's always good to know the origin of viruses and many people well, long before SARS-CoV-2 have been looking at zoonotic diseases, diseases that that start in animals and cross over to humans. Um, here at UC Davis, where I'm at, you know, we have a very strong group uh, in the uh, School of Vet Medicine here right. that's working on this with our One Health program. And um, and again, uh, lots has gone into developing uh, laboratory surveillance systems worldwide um, to, to try to pick up on new contagion that develops. So uh, it's important to know that. But in terms of this particular virus, again, I think the most common thoughts about it now are that it was again, something that developed in animal species, crossed over to humans, uh, was discovered there in Wuhan, China, uh, but not really thought to have any nefarious uh, human action in trying to get a new contagion uh, designed for any reason. So um, we're kind of stuck with that right now. I don't think we're going to be getting a lot more information that will shed any more light on that. But again, having mechanisms in place to be able to, to pick up new contagion, having surveillance systems that work together across countries is really, really important. And I think we've had some of those things in place long before this pandemic, but I think we have seen where there have been some gaps and we have to strengthen that.
0: Has there been progress on building new policies or standards in terms of how these, these animal markets you know, operate in certain countries?
1: Well, you know, that's, again, uh, quite local. And in spite of even policy, the issue is how how are they going to be enforced? How are they regulated? Um, I know the Chinese did close down some of those markets. Uh, There's even controversy now about whether that really was a major, major cause of this particular pandemic, you know, in terms of its origins. Um, so there's some controversy about that, but I think probably the most important aspects of this are to just have surveillance systems in place where you're collecting, uh, at least on a probabilistic sampling um, method approach, picking up, uh, you know, uh, ability to test for new contagion, new, new viruses, new, new infectious agents that, are, that that pop up and get those reported out. I, I know, you know, many years ago, even with the original Uh, uh, coronavirus, uh, the original SARS virus, that the um, governments, the U.S., uh, Russia, China did come together in other countries. In fact, the U.S. State Department actually worked with people in the Centers for Disease Control here to set up uh, contracts with these other countries to share some of that surveillance data without having to go through major hurdles, but to have that set up as a common infrastructure. Uh, So I think those are going to be really important efforts. Uh, And actually also just how we surveil our own population, even here in the United States, you know, the way we've actually been doing surveillance has really been kind of spotty with this particular pandemic. Um, With influenza, we do have a system in place where um, there, there's monitoring for, you know, n- new infection in the population. Um, we are going to have to develop systems like that here in the States for this new virus. And, uh, one of the other things that people are looking into, including, uh, we're doing this as well, is looking at the, the, the role of wastewater monitoring to look for evidence of virus in the wastewater uh, as a means of detecting, uh, you know, outbreaks, surges, and things like that. Um, so there's a lot in place now. We've seen this in multiple cities where wastewater has been monitored for this virus. Um, and in some cases, it's led to increased recommendations for doing more testing. But we're still at, at an early stage now of figuring out how we're going to use wastewater in a, in a more directed way to develop actionable information. And doing that at a, at a local level, even at a neighborhood level, Um, there's not strong evidence yet that that works. We've been testing that out in the city of Davis Um, But uh, while we did pick up some neighborhoods that lit up during the pandemic, um, it wasn't at a level that really said, oh, my gosh, you know, we can really get a handle on what's going on with these patterns and then do something about it that's very specific. At the other extreme, uh, this system has been used on college campuses at a much more local level where they've monitored the wastewater for certain buildings and, of course, the dormitories, for example. And in a number of universities, while they screened all of their students moving back in in the fall of 2020 uh, for the evidence of of infection, you know, those tests were not perfect. And in fact, example, at University of Arizona, the kids that moved back into the residence halls there uh, were all fine to get in. And then they were able to pick up some uh, signal in the wastewater for one of the dorms. They went back in and tested all of the students living in those dorms, and they found there were two cases, two people that were positive that were completely asymptomatic. So at a very local level, at a building level, it works well. At a whole city level, it doesn't tell you too much if you see evidence of virus in the wastewater. It says, yeah, somebody in the city at the treatment plant, uh, somebody there in the whole city is infected. Uh, we've been doing something which we call sub sewer shed monitoring, which is looking at wastewater, you know, throughout throughout a city. And uh, again, the jury's out now about how much information that's going to provide, but we think long-term that will be a really uh, effective means of adding into other ways that we do that surveillance like to do random sampling in the population. That's called sentinel surveillance monitoring. But I think we're going to have to strengthen those mechanisms as we move forward so that we'll be prepared for the next pandemic. So we won't get to a point where we can't contain uh, an outbreak of a new emerging uh, infectious agent. Right. Well, big news this week uh, from the FDA with regards
0: to you know authorizing the second booster. Uh, both my wife and I are very interested in, in this second booster. We're, we're both over the age of sixty-five, but there's some some um, mixed opinions out there. What's your view of the of the need for a second booster?
1: Sure. Um, it's a really important question. And uh, even uh, the FDA's uh, recommendations now um, are a little bit softer, clearly, than the other indications for the, the first booster doses and much softer than, you know, the, the original recommendations to get immunized in the first place, get those first doses in you. Um, so this fourth dose does seem to be somewhat effective in adding to immunity. The, the issue is with people that are fully vaccinated and even got boosted, we know that the the protection tends to wane over time. Um, in particular, the protection that's offered by the antibody response uh, to to the uh, to the vaccine, and then of course to the virus. So we know that the antibody titers tend to decrease over time uh, after you've gotten your vaccination. So uh, you know the Israelis were the first ones to start running trials of a of a fourth dose, which is you know, the second booster dose. And uh, so now we, we have an indication that uh, for those of us that are over 50, um, we can go ahead and get a fourth dose. Um, am I running out to do that? Uh, I'm not running out to do that right now. They say walk, don't run. That was some of the advice. And the reason again, is that if you've been fully uh, vaccinated, you have you've had your first two doses, for example, of Pfizer or Moderna, and then you got a third dose, you got that booster dose you are very, very well protected for severe illness and for death. I mean, that's really the key thing. Um, And while the protection wanes over time, so you might have had your third dose uh, quite some time ago, and I did. I actually got my third dose in August of last year. So here we are uh, at the beginning of April almost. And, uh, uh, you know, so I would certainly have some waning protection in terms of my antibody response. But I actually feel very well protected against the the more serious impact of being infected. So I'm not going to be likely going to the hospital. I will probably end up with a mild case if I did get infected. And actually, I'm waiting a little bit myself until I start traveling. And the reason for that is that locally here uh, we are having very low rates in Northern California, and so I'm not really worried about picking up an infection here locally. And in fact, I'm still doing things like wearing masks when I go into public spaces. Um, So I think I'm still very low risk for getting an infection because the rates are low around me and I'm trying to do some of those protective behaviors. But I am going to have to start traveling for business uh, in uh, in May. And so I'm going to hold off getting my fourth dose till i get closer to that period of time so that uh, again i'll have the maximum effect of when i have a higher risk for exposure if you happen to be living in an area that still has very high rates uh, and there are some pockets in the us then i think you know I, that would certainly motivate me to get uh, uh, get that fourth dose sooner but i'll hold off and again the reason for that is that i might as well wait until i'm in a situation where i'm going to be at higher risk for exposure and then of course that fourth dose is going to last longer (laughs) so i might want to do another trip in the fall and i wouldn't have to be thinking about uh waning protection that much back then so again uh, this is just a matter of kind of personal decision for those of us that are over 50 and as you get older of course the, the, uh, the complexity and the seriousness of getting infected does increase. Or for those that are younger that have um, uh, an immunocompromised uh, situation that could have a medical condition, which puts them at, at, at greater risk, clearly getting a fourth dose now makes a lot of sense. But uh, again, it's, as I said, uh, walk, don't run to get your fourth dose right now, at right. least if you're living in a low, a low area.
0: Got it. Yeah, understood. So, is there a potential downside of giving so many doses of the same vaccine, basically the same learning material for the body? I mean, giving the body this the, this the same message over and over again. You know, I was reading there. You know, could that? You know, is there any evidence that there's some downside to that? Actually,
1: no. I don't think there's evidence there's a downside to it. Um, there is a little bit of a downside because, again, with any immunization, uh, there's a little risk of adverse reaction. But if you've gone through three uh, separate uh, vaccinations already, the fourth doesn't seem quite as scary. It doesn't mean you can't have some kind of a new reaction. But again, we know that the adverse reaction rate is very, very low with these vaccines. So that would be the only downside. In terms of your body seeing exposure to the same sort of a antigen, if you will, uh, not really much of a concern about that. Now, there is the issue of what's going on in the developmental uh, parts of of vaccine development, which is both Pfizer and Moderna are working with formulations of a booster dose that will actually have programming in them for the Delta and the Omicron variants. Uh, That is not what was approved today in terms or this week in terms of the FDA recommendations. So we don't have those on the market right now. They are doing some trials with those. And if you ask me, you know that fits now the model that we do with influenza vaccinations, right? Every year, there's a reformulation of the influenza vaccines that are out in the market based on the anticipated uh, migration, or I should say genetic migration, or mutations that occur, different strains of flu that will be hitting us in the next season. Um, so it's not uncommon for some things like, like I said, with influenza to have a, uh, constantly updated reformulation of the vaccine to, to deal with you know, new variants, if you will. Uh, that's not been happening here yet, but as I said, both Pfizer and Moderna are working on those formulations. So it may be that when we talk about a fifth dose, that would be one that would be programmed in for, you know, some of the more common variants of concern that were not in the original vaccines. I see. But given that these, uh, new vaccines are in development and
0: being tested now. Is, is that another argument for walk, don't run? I mean, wait a little bit here. Maybe there, there'll be a new updated vaccine available.
1: Yeah, I, that's a good question, Steve. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I uh, It may take longer to get those to the market, Um you know, and again, if you're going to be traveling in areas that have high rates of occurrence or you live in an area where there's a lot more disease around, I, I certainly wouldn't necessarily wait uh, for, for this. In my case, you know, since I will be traveling, um, I'm going to get boosted, you know, I'm sure within the next month. Uh, I'm not going to wait until I figure out when the, the these new reformulated uh, boosters are going to be available. Um, I think they'll be part of the future, but I, again, I wouldn't think that for the current time, they're going to really be an important part of my decision making process.
0: Got it. You mentioned the Israeli study. I think there were a million people in that study of people who have gotten four doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Is that study been you know fully evaluated now? I mean, is, is there any questions about the validity of that study or is it pretty solid?
1: I haven't seen the data yet. I mean I think that they they clearly the uh, Pfizer provided that to the fda review panel um and of course they started their trial quite a bit earlier um number of months ago uh I haven't seen the data personally to look at that, but i i'm I'm certain that uh when the fDA panel was looking over the data, of course they've taken into consideration. The, uh, the quality of the study design, uh, the, the fidelity of doing the assessments and so on. And those are those are kind of givens. Uh, that's one of the things that the uh, panels that review these uh, data are, are taking into consideration. So I, I don't have any concerns about that. Again, you know, the early results I saw, some of the early reports were, yeah, it seems to be working okay. And then we, they certainly saw a uh, uptick and uh, titers for antibody, which is one of the ways of, of evaluating the vaccine efficacy. Um, but uh, they weren't really publishing any data about the clinical outcomes. And I think those are probably still a bit ma- immature in terms of looking at hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, again, you're talking about a population that already had gotten three doses of the Pfizer vaccine, right? right? So you wouldn't expect a very high mortality rate. And now, what was the incremental benefit from getting a fourth dose in terms of deaths? I, I would imagine that even with a million people in a in a study, and I don't know, and I'm not sure the study was that large, but you know, you wouldn't be expecting to see too much of a signal to say, "Yeah, boy, this really was effective at, at cu- cutting deaths," because again, the people that are in that trial were all folks that had gotten exposed to three doses already. So, you know, again, uh, that's the kind of thing that we do over a longer period of time to look at the vaccine uh, effectiveness, if you will, when you get it out in the population and you've got longer-term outcomes to look at. Um, They still, you know, study those folks and they're going to be looking for, ultimately, you'll be able to measure the difference in hospitalization rates and death rates with some precision. But the problem is, again, it takes a lot lot longer when you've got people that were already protected to be with.
0: Right. And, and Brad, anything new with uh, the, our understanding of long COVID?
1: no again that's evolving uh there is long covid we know that um i know that many programs around the country have set up uh clinics for long covid we've done that here again at uc davis health um so uh it is going to be something we we have to reckon with uh there are people that uh, had severe infections and survived those uh and even people that had mild uh infections that you know you're you're, you're seeing some of these Uh, COVID symptoms that are are popping up long term. So again, the jury's out right now. Um, I think there's probably consensus that the best way to avoid long COVID is to, to protect people from getting infected in the first place and getting vaccinated. So there's not much argument about that. But th- for those of us that are unfortunate enough to have had infections, particularly if we were unvaccinated, you know, we're we're going to see a host of long-term uh, effects. Uh, hopefully, many of those will be transient. They may occur over the next year or two, and then hopefully they would be self-resolving. But we still don't know yet. We haven't had the uh, pandemic long enough to look at really uh, longer term outcomes that may happen over multiple years. Right. Any other new
0: information on COVID-19 that we should cover tonight?
1: No, I think the other, just one other comment I wanted to make is that, you know, uh, this week we actually have International meeting. It's the Consortium of Universities for Global Health. We've been meeting this week, and of course, the uh, the uh, the the disease burden globally is very, very much different than than our story here in in, uh, the United States. Uh, And I think one of the uh, the the major issues that we're trying to grapple with now is how to get vaccines delivered all over the world. And it's interesting because in many places now, even in parts of Africa. It's not the vaccine supply that's the limiting factor. We've run into the same issues of lack of confidence in the vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. So you have people that are refusing that. And I think one of the major reasons for that is, again, this constant feed of misinformation and in some cases, disinformation. So uh, and I was uh, talking about this earlier this week at that conference, that if you think about the cultural context of what's going on, you know, we've had people in this country that are very concerned about vaccines. Vaccines uh, causing some damage to fetuses for pregnant women. And that was really started uh, completely misinformation. There was no basis for that whatsoever. But think about the context here. You know, fertility is an important issue for us in the States here. But if you go to some parts of the low and middle-income uh, countries around the world, you know, fertility is a much more significant cultural uh, thing. And so um, there is even more reluctance in some places to get vaccines based on misinformation about the the, uh, potential hazards for vaccination. So it's one of the things that we're trying to grapple with now uh, worldwide. And and again, vaccine policies are ones that, well, of course they come from uh, individual countries, but there's also a need to be thinking about vaccine policy uh, as it affects folks across the globe and how governments need to work together.
0: Dr. Brad Pollack, thank you so much for being on our podcast this evening. My
1: pleasure. Thanks, Steve.
0: I want to thank you for listening to today's Fight Back COVID Update podcast. You can sign up for notifications for future COVID updates or check out additional podcasts by going to our website at www.healthcareconsumerrights.org. We also welcome your input and stories that we can use on future podcasts. This is Steve Poizner and this is Fight Back a podcast by the Healthcare Consumer Rights Foundation. Thanks for listening. I look forward to our next podcast. Talk with you soon.